0: Welcome to the Mountain Brook Baptist Church podcast. We pray that this message will help you in your walk with Christ. Let me read Isaiah 49, uh, verses 1 through 6 to you. That's our text of the afternoon, and then we'll pray. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword, and in the shadow of his hand he hid me. And he made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. And he says to me, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, oh Lord, in this afternoon hour, we pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, unveil yourself to us in your Son so that we may see the truth of the gospel and know that it is indeed true and beautiful and that it is true for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can can I encourage you this morning if you if you find the prophets hard? Um, you know, they're there people who give themselves to these. Bible readings, and if you if you make your way, you read the Bible through in a year, and if you, if you make your way through Genesis and the Exodus, and if you make it through Leviticus, I'm very impressed. <laughs> um, but but a lot of people, you know, can abandon ship by the time they get to the prophets. It's hard. Um, I mentioned Saint Augustine yesterday in in the sermon, and um, I, I I think I've got a lot of time for Augustine. He's a remarkable man in the history of the church. Augustine, in his confessions, describes his conversion and his preparing for his baptism. And like any good young Christian, he was very precocious, young, thoughtful. He went to his, his pastor and he said, what should I read to get ready for my baptism? And Ambrose, who was the bishop of Milan, said, well, Augustine, you need to go and read Isaiah. Because there's no prophet that will prepare you for the gospel and your baptism like Isaiah the prophet. And, and you'll maybe find some encouragement in this. I think my students do. Augustine says in the Confessions, I went and turned to the first chapter of Isaiah and found it so difficult, and un, um, I, and I couldn't understand a word of it, that I put it aside, and this is a direct quote, until I could learn the Lord's style of language a little bit better. I was like That's that's a great quote. Um, I, I, I would... I would uh, um, Give you one guess where, where Augustine went, where he found greener pastures than, than Isaiah. Um, he, he found himself in the Psalms. So that's where, whenever you're doing your Bible reading and it gets a little boring, you're probably like me, like, well, there's always the Psalms. So Augustine felt the same way. Our text today, Isaiah 49, it sits on a fault line within the book of Isaiah and really within the whole of the Bible. So th- this is a very important text. The plates of God's Redemptive actions are shifting, and and the whole globe is called on to witness. I mean, listen to the first verse of Isaiah 49 again. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention to me, all you people who are far away. And the previous chapter, Isaiah chapter 48, has paved the way for Isaiah 49, and it creates this deep sense of anticipation for something new a new thing that God is doing in, his, in the midst of his people. Listen to what Isaiah 48 tells us in the previous chapter, and this is what the prophet says. From this time forward, I make you to, and I want you to, 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 to take note of this word, I make you to hear new things, hidden things that you have not known before. And God moves to make things right. His move to do that are now being set in motion. For UCS Lewis people out here, it's kind of like Aslan and the Chronicles of Narnia, that he's now on the move uh, to set the kingdom uh, movement in, in motion. And Isaiah 48 tells us that these new things that God is about to do, he says they are created now, not long ago. Before today, Isaiah says, you have never heard of them. So Isaiah 48 creates this deep sense of of expectancy and surprise. They create this sense of eager anticipation. What is God going to do now? Back in the Exodus... With the sea in front of Israel and Pharaoh's armies behind them, Moses, in what must be one of my favorite verses in the Bible, tells the people in Exodus that the Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is keep still. That's what God did for them back then. What's he going to do now? How's he going to flex his saving muscles now in front of the whole of the created uh, order. And notice the details of the language here in Isaiah 48. I make you to hear new things. I'm going to make you hear. I'm going to open your ears so that you can understand. You're no longer going to be deaf or blind. I'm going to open your ears, and I'm going to let your eyes see. This is the day of salvation. And now Isaiah 49 begins with these words, hear. So, so do you notice the dynamic between Isaiah 48 and 49? Here's what Isaiah 48 says. I will make you to hear new things. And here's how Isaiah 49, verse 1, begins. Hear. Hear me. And this is why the tectonic plates between Isaiah 48 and 49 shift precisely at this point. And they move around this call for all of us to listen and to hear to the new things that God is doing in our midst. What's God doing now? Listen up and hear. And what is it that we're to hear? Or perhaps better, to whom are we to listen? And it's at this point in Isaiah where this servant figure that we met yesterday in Isaiah 42 begins to speak in a first-person voice. We're listening now to God's servant speak this figure that emerges from within Israel as God's unique instrument by which he will redeem Israel, and he's going to redeem the whole world. And the servant speaks, and all the world is to listen. And who is this servant? Who is it? Well, here's the challenge, and this is, put your seatbelts on just for a second, because we're going to go a little academic-y for two seconds, and then we'll get out of it. But if you'll notice in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 49, that the servant is clearly identified as Israel. You are my servant. You are Israel. We're like, well, and I won't go into the weeds here, but we expect that up until this point in Isaiah. The servant is in some way wrapped up with the identity of Israel. But here's where the plates begin to shift. Because when you look at verse 5, now you read that this servant, who is Israel, is also given a mission to Israel to redeem Israel and to bring them back. So the question sort of sits before us, right? Like, is the servant Israel or is the servant someone other than Israel within Israel? And the answer to that is, and this is great sort of academic jargon, yes, right? <laughs> that, that's the answer. Is the servant in some way identified with the nation of Israel? Yes, indeed. Is the servant distinct from the nation in some way? And the answer now in Isaiah 49 is yes, indeed. And I would suggest to you this morning that that's the new redemptive dynamic that Isaiah wants you to listen to, to hear. There's a figure that emerges from within Israel who takes on his own shoulders the mission and election of Israel to be Israel for Israel and for the nations at large. You've read Samuel before. You've you've been in the book of Judges before. You've spent some time in Kings. You've read the history of Israel. It's not a happy history. In fact, one could say, if you look at an aerial, uh, globe, a Goodyear blimp view of the Old Testament, that the only really faithful generation was the book of Joshua. And then after that, it's like all hell breaks loose through Judges, and then Samuel, and then Kings. Because Israel was called to be something for the nations around them. And she never lived into the call that God had placed on her. And now, you have emerging from within Israel, someone who's going to be Israel for her and for the nations at large. You've read your Bibles, you know this stuff, right? This is why Jesus in the Gospels is identified as God's firstborn son, And we know that language. That's the language of Israel, isn't it? Don't you remember Exodus chapter 4? What was Moses to tell Pharaoh back in Egypt? Hey, Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go so that he may worship me. And then God lays the gauntlet down uh, through his spokesperson, Moses, and he says, and if you don't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to take your firstborn son. So this firstborn son language that's tied to Jesus, this is all... Israel language. And then as a child, Jesus goes down to Egypt, and and then he comes out of Egypt. Does that sound familiar to us? He wanders in the wilderness being tempted and tested by the devil for how many days? 40 days, just like Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And of course we know that Israel comes out of the wilderness wanderings a mess, and Jesus comes out unscathed then we find Jesus on top of a mountain in Matthew chapter 5 giving the law in other words Jesus's actions within, within the New Testament testify to his identity as are you ready for this the faithful israelite he's the israelite among israel that becomes israel for her and the nations at large and The dynamics of Isaiah 49 are worked out in time in the person and work of Jesus, the faithful Israelite. And you can feel in Isaiah 49 the passion of the servant. The description is filled with the suffering of the righteous, the heaviness of Jesus' burden. I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing, says the servant in Isaiah 49. Like so many of the prophets that went before, the the servant's call is also his burden. He's the instrument of God's word, the sharp arrow of God's arsenal, and the servant suffers under the burden of his ministry. It weighs terribly on him, yet he knows that his way and his final vindication rests in the hands of God. So the servant embodies in himself this, this kind of courage and compassion that is willing to bear God's word and and faithfully deliver God's word to his people. And unlike any prophet that preceded Jesus, Jesus both faithfully delivers God's word to his people and at the same time is God's word in human flesh. So Isaiah 49 is a text that, that really lunges at the person and work of Jesus Christ. Its very essence, as a prophetic word, drives us to him. And they help us to understand who Jesus is. Isaiah forty nine pressures us as Christians to come to terms with who Jesus um, really is. I, um, I don't don't know if this is silly. All right, I apologize. I had this fantasy that um, that maybe Friday night in in the new heavens and the new earth will be. Downtown, New Heavenly Jerusalem, uh, Friday night, movie night. I have this sort of fantasy. And, um, and, and so instead of uh, like Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments on the big screen, it's going to be the real Exodus shown live. Um, so I, have all, I just love the idea of that. One If they do a road to Emmaus movie night uh, on a Friday night in heaven, I'll see you there. Right? We'll We'll go. Um, because I just think this is one of the most fantastic stories of the Bible. And I think Luke, the gospel writer, had a sense of humor. I think he's kind of my kind of guy. He uh, knew how to kind of laugh, um, had to chuckle. I'm not talking about guffaw laughter, but there's, there's some humor in Luke's gospel. And the road to Emmaus is one of those scenes, right? Luke 24, Jesus is bodily resurrected. There's two disciples that are walking down the road. Jesus shows up to them, and, he's, and they can't, for some reason, can't recognize him. More about that in a second. And G- what does Jesus say? Well, this is the Genalette paraphrase. Why is everybody looking so glum around here? And and they and this is this Luke had a smile when he wrote this. Uh, they, they, the disciples said, Are you the only one in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened over the past few days? They're asking that to Jesus. That's the humor here, right? And he's like, well, pray tell, right? And, uh, and so they come back and they say, well, um, Jesus of Nazareth, and these are, these are such heart-rending words. Um, we thought he was the Messiah, but they killed him. See, those don't work. He, he was the one to bring back the, the, the Davidic kingdom in its fullness. We believe that about him. But they put him on a cross like they did Spartacus and political rebels that die on crosses. They just That doesn't work in terms of who the Messiah is. And so they're walking along on this road and Jesus continues to play with them and he, and he presses them. And he says to them, you're so foolish to believe. And this is the part that makes me kind of get excited with what I do for a living. He says, you're so slow to believe the law and the prophets. And Jesus begins to explain all things to himself concerning him. Then um, Jesus appears again in the upper room in Luke 24, and he's sitting down, and this is what I find so instructive for you and for me about what Jesus demonstrates on the road to Emmaus and in the upper room. Remember, in a very true and real way, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, Jesus Christ was instrumentally involved in the writing of the scriptures of Israel. He's the author of the scriptures of Israel as God in human flesh. And Jesus, the author of the scriptures of Israel, sits down with his disciples and has a Bible study with them. And beginning, it says, with the law and the prophets and the Psalms, which on my reading means the whole thing, all of the Old Testament, he begins to describe to them all things concerning himself. It's as if Jesus is instructing us, do you really want to know who I am? Do you want to flesh out in its fullness who I am? Well, if you want to do that, then you're going to need to take a deep, deep dive into the scriptures of Israel to understand who I am. And then there's this phrase that you find in there that's so, so beautiful. And the phrase says, oh, if I lost it here. Oh, here it is. And they said, um, did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening to us the scriptures? Isaiah 49 is a text that can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make our hearts burn within us because we so desperately need Jesus. I desperately need him. We always need him. And we certainly feel the great discontent of our current moment. And I don't know if Jesus turned to Isaiah 49 with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, but he certainly could have. And what a marvelous text to shape our understanding of who Jesus is. And here's the description He's God's servant, He's the arrow of God's making, polished and sharpened, the very means by which He will redeem Israel. But again, the redemptive plates are shifting. And not only will he redeem Israel, but he's going to redeem the whole world. The servant is God's light, and he's God's salvation. We so desperately need the light of Jesus' face to shine on us. Our moment, the moment that we're in right now, is fraught with many dragons on every side for faithful Christians. Where do we turn for the truth? How do we size up what's happening? How do we hold together complex social and global forces that are coming together in some, what seems to be at times, unsustainable tension? And I feel the pressure of that moment, as I imagine many of you do as well. But here's Isaiah 49 this morning. But as the community of the redeemed, can't we stop even in the middle of all of our confusion again and again to plead with Jesus Christ to shine his light on us. He's the only true light that can break into the darkness of any moment, and especially our moment. I mean, if we think that we have within our resources to figure out all the social ills of our moment, then I've got bad news for you and for me. We don't have the resources internally. But one thing that we can certainly agree on is our need for Jesus in our desperate need for him to shine his saving light on us again, that we'd know the true warmth and joy and freedom and love that comes when Jesus stands in the midst of the darkness and says again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We must point away from ourselves again and again to him because he has the healing work of the saving power of the gospel in his wings, a gospel that completely shapes how we understand our personal identity from top to bottom. If Jesus told us that we only really know him by reading the Bible, and if true salvation and reconciliation are found in him only, then Isaiah 49, along with almost every page of John's Gospel too, speaks clearly about Jesus himself being, the light of God's face shining in our midst. The servant of Isaiah is God's light to the nations. He brings God's joy and his freedom. He displaces the darkness of our souls. Jesus is the Lord, making the light of his face to shine upon us. John Donne, famous Anglican preacher and poet, 17th century, said so long ago, this great line, good, good Holy Week word, come and recreate me, now grown ruinous. The light of God's salvation in Jesus Christ can recreate hearts like yours and mine that have grown ruinous. And God give us the true humility and the courage that it takes to point away from ourselves to Jesus Christ, the only light of the world, capable of dealing with the darkness that hides in the corners of all of our hearts. German theologian by the name of Hans Urs von Balthasar, that's a great Airedale terrier name if any of you are looking for dog names. Von Balthasar says, when God hides his face, everything created dies away. But when he again turns his face towards creation, everything awakens to new life. And Isaiah's not done just in verse 6. The servant yes is the light to the nations and he is God's salvation but there's an interesting feature here in the text and this is where my again my academic side is going to come out so brace yourself. Isaiah 49:6 is interesting grammatically because it says something like this that my salvation may reach to all the ends of the earth. But if, and here's your homework. Go, go read this tonight. If you look at Isaiah 49.6, salvation and light are in parallel to one another in their phrasing. So can I give you a very clunky translation of Isaiah 49.6 this morning? Here's where it is. I have given you to be light for the nations, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, the servant Here, in Isaiah 49, isn't merely bringing salvation to the ends of the earth, dispensing God's saving actions as he goes. The force of Isaiah 49 is more immediate than that. The servant is God's salvation. He is God's saving act of deliverance. He is the parted Red Sea that we need to walk through. How blessed, said the psalmist, are those who take refuge in him. Because to be near God is to be near, God's def- be, to be near Jesus, is to be near God's defining and definitive saving action, the action that makes valleys into mountains and crooked paths straight again, the action that caused all the earth to tremble when Jesus hung between heaven and hell. To be in Christ is to be in God's saving and redemptive presence. I um, had a f- fascinating encounter about oh six, seven, eight months ago. I'm getting to that age where time is getting funny. Um, but have you, have you ever had one of these scenarios? And I, I see enough um, gray hair in the room to know that many of you have had this scenario where you see an email or a voicemail show up um, either in your inbox or on your phone and it's a name that you haven't seen in years. I mean, I'm talking about like 20, 30 years. This happened to me recently. I was sitting um, uh, uh, in my office to get a phone call from somebody, and it was a pastor from Greenville, South Carolina, that I hadn't seen in forever, and he happened to have a child that was going to Sanford, and so let's get together. So before I know it, here we are, 20 years, whatever later, sitting on a bench up at the summit, drinking a coffee, and and catching up on things. And, I, and, and if those are scenarios where they're not asking for money, right, it could be really a happy kind of thing. <laughs> and so this was a, a, nice, a nice thing. Anyway, one of the members of this man's church in Greenville, South Carolina, was my choir director in college, Dr. Warren Cook. And so I just sort of caught up and I said, Tel, tell me about Dr. Cook. And, and and I've appreciated the music this week. I think my university choir experience is one of the places where I met my wife. I mean, it's one of the greatest experiences of my life. And now all that's a memory that kind of feels like a former, a former life. And so I heard from my friend that was here that Dr. Cook had put together this incredible group of singers in Greenville called the uh, the River Tree Singers. And and I'm not really an online person, so I had to go sort of hunting for this. And, and they apparently come together once a year. And they sing some big, smashing piece of choral music. A lot of this is on YouTube, by the way. I I, I found myself listening over and over again to their performance of Dan Forrest's Requiem for the Living. It might be a nice thing for you to listen to this week if you can find it. It's a stunning piece of music. All of the bits of the requiem mass for the dead are present, and all of it, as you would expect, is in Latin. Right? Requiem, aeternum, dona, eis, domine, curie, eleison, sanctus, 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 onus dei, quitolus, peccata, mundi. And then, of course, the final movement, Luce eterna, light eternal, luceat eis, shine on us. I, 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 I love. i was just blown away. It's beautiful. So all of the music is in Latin, and even if you get lost in the translation, you kind of know where things are going. But Forrest does something in this Requiem that is so arresting, and I imagine for some it would be a turnoff, but it wasn't for me. There's only one section in all of the Requiem Mass that's in English. And it's right in the middle of the last movement of the Lukes Eterna. So you have what seems to be a hundred-person voice choir singing, and then a single tenor voice moves to center stage and sings in this glorious melody, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. Come unto me, and I will give you rest a clear invitation to the gospel of Jesus Christ ringing out amidst all of that surrounding Latin. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you burdened today? Jesus Christ can carry it with you and for you. Are you angry for various reasons? Jesus Christ can rage the calming storms. Are you fearful? Jesus Christ is where perfect love casts out all fear. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Because when we come to Jesus Christ, and by the way, we have to come to Jesus Christ again and again and again. When we come, we come to the very light of God's face shining on us. We come to God's salvation offered freely to you and to me, the forgiveness of our sins, the healing of our internal disorder, the making right of sins, wrongs, and their effects. Because when we come to Jesus Christ, we also come to our true selves. Light eternal, shine on us. Or as Isaiah 49 says, listen, you islands, hear this, all you distant nations. Thank you so much for joining us today. We pray that today's message brought you hope as we continue to love God and live with grace and generosity. Be sure to check back here for more podcasts. And as always, go out and do the Lord's good work.